Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You hold the line faithful to duty, confronting our nation's foes with implacable will. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. You hold the line true to honor, living by a moral code regardless of who is watching. Our surrender will be voluntary because by that time we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. Welcome back to another episode of Holding the Line, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of national security, technology, and policy, and of course, all the fun, interesting things that we find ourselves discussing on a weekly basis. I'm your host, retired U.S. Navy Commander Guy Snodgrass, and we've got a really special episode for you today because it's not lost on anyone. What would be a normal process in America has turned into somewhat of a monumental one because of the recent upheaval and uncertainty surrounding the 2020 election cycle, the January 6th storming of Capitol Hill. And so all eyes, I'd say not even just across our own nation, all eyes around the globe are turning to the United States and to Washington, D.C. for the inauguration of the 46th president of the United States, President Joe Biden. So as we consider what this means, again, getting back to the the reason for this podcast, you know, several things come to mind. Number one, safety and security. How does this day unfold? Can we pull off the inauguration without seeing the much discussed and possibly threatened uh, risk of any kind of uprising in the Washington, D.C. area or in state capitals around the country? So, of course, that's first and foremost on everyone's mind. We want everyone to, to certainly be focused on moving forward and not fixated on the past. I think the other thing that it really will serve to do, regardless of your political affiliation, is recenter the political discourse in America. This does not mean that hard feelings on one side or the other are magically going to disappear. That's never happened in the centuries that we've existed as a country, and there's no reason to believe that it'll happen as we move forward. But there, there can certainly be signs of a return to more of a political normal, a style of discourse where all parties can be heard, their opinions openly expressed and discussed, and then decided upon as we move into not only this upcoming administration, but future election cycles that will determine the path that America pursues and, and the type of policy decisions that we will embark upon. So let's take a step back. I mean, assuming everything today goes well, and by the time you listen to this podcast, we may be past the January 20th inauguration. And so we will certainly know how it turned out. But as we contemplate what this day will look like, uh, one thing that certainly comes to mind is the updated national security priorities. We're starting to see some of these trickle out into the media space, not only with who President-elect Biden has nominated to take some senior level cabinet positions and other positions in national security. And of course, I, I also throw the economic aspect of this into national security because our economy is the engine for our national security, both here domestically, but also how we're perceived abroad and the type of influence we can wield. It's certainly not even an element of soft power. Our economy is probably the most hard power portion of national security. So with that being said, I mean, as you're watching some of these individuals we've discussed previously on this podcast, uh, the fact that retired U.S. Army General Lloyd Austin was nominated 
to be the next Secretary of Defense. So as this weekend folds, we're going to certainly hear more about that confirmation process. But all of this, the the outgoing Trump administration, the incoming Biden administration, is going to result in a reorientation and reorienting overall the policies that America pursues, the way that everything from immigration to the financial situation to COVID is going to be handled. And so once again, regardless of your political affiliation, that's just a, a reality. The way that that gets reshaped in the coming weeks and months as more policy announcements are made after we see some confirmation. And of course, during the confirmation hearings themselves, we're going to see a lot of what these proposed senior leaders plan to do during their first 100 days in office. So one thing that I really wanted to spend this episode taking a step back and and really considering, because it has such a huge impact on national security, not only present day, but also as we think about this incoming administration and where they should place a lot of priority moving forward is cybersecurity. When you think about the fact that our nation has long been a digital nation, we've, we've led the global digital transformation. So many nations have now openly pursued that, sometimes to openly compete with the United States, other times just to adopt the best practices, to these enabling technologies that, uh, that allow them to ramp up rapidly as they pursue their own economic and manufacturing goals. So with that in mind, I wanted to spend some time during this podcast episode getting to what really winds up being the soft digital underbelly for America. And that is our cybersecurity, or at times lack thereof, because we've had such a huge rush to move to the cloud. There are so many cloud-based services so many digital artifacts that when that information is exfiltrated, and by that I mean it's, it's removed from your server, someone gains unauthorized access to it, not only are you not getting it back, but, but that information exists now in someone else's control for as long as they desire. It's no longer the days of the 1970s, 1980s, you know, spy versus spy. If someone has to actually physically access your location, to rifle through your files, take what they want, and and try to avoid capture or imprisonment. Uh, Now you can have that rogue actor in a cyberspace in another country, or even here in the United States, who just logs on and perpetrates some sort of cyber intrusion into someone else's system and over time rifles through. So that leads us to one of the biggest most monumental issues that have occurred in this space in some time, and that is the recent, what has widely been called the solar winds uh, cybersecurity breach, uh, which we've now learned has extended to many other companies. So it's not just isolated to solar winds, as we'll hear in just a moment. So joining me for this conversation to to consider what this means, the risks that it poses to our national security, and not just national security, to each and every one of us. I can tell you on a number of occasions, and, and by a number, I mean somewhere on the, on the dozen scale, I have been the recipient of a, of a letter from the U.S. government on official letterhead saying that my information was breached, that the Office of Personnel and Management uh, had, had suffered a breach, and so my security information was exfiltrated and accessed. So, uh, you know, this information, once again, it's out there and people are aggregating it, they're able to pull it and subsequently use it to their advantage. And and there's just a lot of danger with that. So uh, as I alluded to, to help us 
walk our way through what this data breach means, what this persistent state actor has been able to accomplish, is a return guest. Uh, in fact, one of our highest rated episodes previously listed was Admiral Mike Rogers, the former director for the National Security Agency. He was also the second commander of the U.S. Cyber Command. So for the four years he held that post, he was dual-hatted, as we would say. He had both Title 10 and Title 50 authority. And really, it's hard to find someone who's going to be more knowledgeable on the ins and outs of cybersecurity and intelligence as it relates to not only just the U.S. government, but to America as a whole and how that plays on the global stage. So uh, very excited to be having this conversation with Admiral Mike Rogers. Uh, once again, if you enjoy the podcast, please just take a second as you're listening. Give Go ahead and give us a five-star review. Leave a comment. I love reading your comments, and I've already had several individuals weigh in on stuff they'd like to hear about in the future. Absolutely take that into account. Happy to receive that feedback and work it into a future episode. So with that being said, here's my conversation with retired U.S. Navy Admiral Mike Rogers. Admiral Rogers, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Guy. Great to be with you today. Yeah, it's great to have you back. And I know I mentioned this email, but I'll, I'll say it on the podcast. Uh, I'm sure you're pleased to know that of all the episodes we've had so far, yours by far, the first one we had where you talked about your experience as the uh most immediate past commander of the uh, NSA and U.S. Cyber Command has been the most listened to. Uh, people have just found it to be fascinating, not only your background, but, you know, we kind of dove into some of the cyber realities for where we are uh, as a nation. Well, I don't know what that says period. about your audience, that that would be the most popular. <laughs> They're all Admiral Rogers fans. I think that's what <laughs> we're saying. Uh, so, I, so I appreciate it because that was a great topic. And I really appreciate uh, relatively soon after that conversation, your willingness to come back on because, sure. of course, you know, we've all been, I mean, there's so many things happening right now, but we've been captivated prior to this most recent news with uh, both COVID and with uh, the happenings on Capitol Hill about the solar wind hack. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, it now appears, and there's been some attribution made by the U.S. intelligence community that points the finger to Russia as someone who had had an advanced persistent threat into uh, solar winds and used that as, an, as a means of access. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And I just think, you know, for those who haven't had a chance to listen to the previous episode, and, and I recommend if you haven't that you do so, but uh, if you would just maybe spend a couple minutes talking about your role when you were dual-headed uh, as the head of both the National Security Administration, but also, uh, excuse me, agency, as well as the U.S. Cyber Command and how those two elements differ. So first, I, it was, I, but one of the things I loved about both of them personally for me was the fact I found myself straddling two worlds. On the one hand, I was the senior uniformed intelligence professional in the DOD as a four-star. And I ran the largest intelligence organization in the U.S. government. At the same time, as commander of U.S. Cyber Command, um, I am one of the 10 senior most operational commanders in the DOD. Um, so I'm both in the intel world and I'm in the operational world. And it's not about me. It's really about the missions and the men and women who make them work. Um, there's a reason why the two were brought together under one. First, there are differences in mission, there are differences in legal authorities, and there are differences in budgets. So you always had to be very specific. What voice am I speaking with as the commander or the director? What legal authority am I using? Title 10, conduct of military operations for cyber command. Title 50, the conduct under US code, the conduct of intelligence operations. 
And what monetary or budget authority was I using? Because Cyber Command's money was allocated via the Congress to Cyber Command. NSA's money was allocated to NSA. I couldn't mix and mingle the two of them. We had to be very specific. So broadly, Cyber Command, three, a, a DOD operational organization, now at the unified command level, we were always treated that way. And there's a reason why we ended up becoming a, the, operation, the combatant commander when I was the director, three primary missions. The first, to defend the DOD's networks from external intrusion. The second, to create and employ the offensive capabilities of cyber for the department. Now, we're not the only organization. JSOC and some others had some capabilities as well, but we are the largest, we are the primary, and we often partnered with many of those other actors within the department who had some measure of cyber capability. And third and finally, if directed by the president or the secretary to apply our capabilities in response to external attempts to um, go after US infrastructure, financial system, the power system, the aviation infrastructure, et cetera. NSA, different, different legal authorities, different budget, different mission. NSA, an intelligence organization using a single discipline, signals intelligence for two specific purposes. The first purpose, foreign intelligence. The second purpose, cybersecurity or information assurance. And so you see um, both organizations operating in the same space, same battle space, the cyber domain, both organizations using similar kinds of capabilities, and both organizations kind of dependent on similar kinds of expertise. Thus, the decision was made, particularly in the early days when we were just creating the structure, let's align them under one individual because that will help with the deconfliction since they're both going to be operating in the same terrain. And then secondly, it'll enable us to accelerate the development of Cyber Command because it'll take advantage of the investments and the knowledge and the insight and the expertise that NSA has already gained for DOD within cyber. And it will also enable us to develop tools faster because again, we can take advantage of the expertise and knowledge of NSA. No, that's great. I remember in our previous conversation, you even mentioned that it was very explicit at times where you had to say, I am taking off oh, yes. my NSA hat. I am putting on my Cyber Command commander hat. Here's I, what I'm, said, what I am now do. speaking as the commander, or I would literally say, I am now speaking as the director. Because that, yeah. that's what you had to do for, for people. And my lawyers always were, you know, lawyers are always keen to make sure you're very explicit about what legal authority you're using. No, it, I mean, it's fascinating, not only that you did that, but uh, obviously, like you said, you're, you're balancing those different requirements uh, in the real time. And of course, there could be a lot of active ongoing operations in the, in the most broad sense of the term. And so you're constantly flipping between these two uh, worlds that you can't necessarily coincide within, but that you have to step quickly from one to the other. Right. Sometimes you just uh, got to prioritize. Do I want to deny, degrade, destroy a target? Do I want to exploit the target? So I want to continue to sustain access to it. I mean, there's always those kinds of choices that you're trying to think about in cyber. So let's step into some more specifics about the solar wind hack. I mean, this is something that has caught a lot of attention throughout um, time. Obviously, nation states uh, and entities have always sought to ex uh, exploit, to intrude into other computer systems. We, we discussed some of this in that first conversation you and I had. It's very reminiscent of when uh, a nation state was attributed to having 
perpetuated the RSA key hack where they were able to break into kind of the keys to the kingdom, if you will. They get into RSA, which provided security to other companies, uh, were able to uh, intrude into that system. And then subsequently by using those types of keys, then uh, perpetuate attacks against other organizations, other corporations, et cetera. And you're seeing uh, somewhat of a, of a similar modality here in that by getting into SolarWinds uh, code base, by, by being able to uh, you know, break in through that vector, they're not going directly at a company per se. They're, they're almost using essentially a Trojan horse. They're, they're, expo they're exploiting a, a weakness now in the system that's been opened into- right, Which is the whole idea behind a supply chain attack. And you've seen the Russians do this before, not patch in June of 2017, Russian efforts to degrade and destroy infrastructure via cyber in the Ukraine. They use the supply chain, in this case, a tax company in the Ukraine that provides tax software to consumers and customers. Customers were going to the tax website, downloading the software, and lo and behold, the Russians have actually manipulated the source code and uploaded, uploaded malicious software, malware, um, that then not only hits the targets in the um, Ukraine, but quite frankly, then propagates much more broadly. So supply chain has been a tactic that the Russians like to use. So, you know, when we think about this, you know, you just described the two hats you had to wear, the two organizations that you were in charge of. One of the questions that I've been asked uh, repeatedly, and there's a lot of confusion about, as people consider, you know, they said that it was very interesting that the Russians attacked essentially a U.S.-based company. Uh, and the misperception may be that that Cyber Command can only defend against external non-domestic threats, meaning threats that are offshore. Is, one, is that true? Or uh, can you also monitor the traffic that's uh, you know, within the United States? So for example, something like a solar winds hack uh, or attack or network access can be detected even though it's being perpetuated from inside the continental borders of the United States. So go back to those three missions for Cyber Command. Cyber Command's responsibilities on the defensive side are strictly associated day-to-day -day with the DOD, not with the broader government, not with the private sector in the United States, where solar winds gets to be interesting in some ways to me is much less on the cyber command side. Although you should ask yourself, you know, cyber command has responsibilities within the DOD arena for defense. So one of the interesting topics is, so how did this Russian actor penetrate DOD networks, what networks, how, et cetera. Where it really gets to be interesting though is NSA as an intelligence organization tasked with generating insights and knowledge as to what cyber actors are doing, but doing it from a foreign perspective. One of the things that's interesting, you can tell the Russians are a learning adaptive adversary. If you go back to 2016 in the presidential election, for example, the Russians tended to use a lot of infrastructure outside the United States. Um, that's a positive for NSA. You know, that's, a, that's a, a legal target for NSA. If you look at what they did around the solar winds um, activities, they opted to use much of the infrastructure inside the United States, which means that that's off, off the bounds for NSA. Hey, we're a foreign intelligence organization. We don't do that. It's one of the lessons I would argue for solar winds is we need to step back and reassess our current methodology and approach to how we're doing cybersecurity. Because quite frankly, our adversaries are exploiting 
this structure that we put in place, these boundaries that we've laid down, they are taking advantage of that. And it's by design, not by chance. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, obviously, like, you know, we've both studied and you, your career certainly was uh, probably about twice the length of mine in uniform service. But I mean, that's something that always underpins what you do with uh, military operations is you're thinking strategically, you're looking to exploit the weakness of your adversary while minimizing your own and maximizing your strength. So it makes perfectly, it makes perfect sense that you, your adversaries or your, or your global competitors would seek to be adaptive and yeah. uh, find ways to exploit our weaknesses. And, and that's something that I know we've, uh, senior leaders have talked about over time, uh, you know, and that's coming up more and more now as we're talking about the uh, rise of autonomy and artificial intelligence and yep. the Western focus on ethics and ethical employment, whereas other nations may not uh, see such an encumbrance as a necessity. So adaptability and agility, is it's always been important on, in, in the battle space, so to speak. Uh, I would argue that speed, adaptability, and agility become even more critical in the digital age. Which is an interesting bureaucratic challenge for organizations because they are not normally inclined for speed, agility, or adaptability. Most organizations, most bureaucracies just aren't optimized for that. And there's been a lot of information, of course, floating around uh, about solar winds. Uh, one, you know, do you have a sense of of the you know based on the scope and the scale at which this appears to have occurred? Um, there's been there's been timelines out there of it could take over a year to actually have a fairly good accounting of how much the Russians were able to intrude into our uh, cyber systems, into our electronic systems. I mean, do you think that that's a fair approximation? Do you think that well, that could be accelerated? Let me step back for a minute first, if I could. Sure. Um, we're labeling this solar winds, but I urge people that can be a little misleading. Solar winds, a particular company that produces a series of software products that IT administrators and IT systems use, um, was a primary um, target. Well, it was a primary venue, but it wasn't the only one. What you're finding, the more we get into this, what we're going to find is the Russians used multiple venues. Solar Wind, that company and its software is just one avenue of approach they use to approach these targets. Hmm. So I urge people, we got to think much more broadly than this. Um, and we're going to learn a lot more information as time goes along. We still, I would argue, don't have a complete picture. Uh, you're seeing elements, penetration of other software providers, for example. But the second point that, that I would make is this also highlights how do organizations, I don't care if you're in the government or you're in the private sector, how do you safeguard your supply chains? Not just in cyber. I, I would argue this is an interesting dynamic over and above cyber in this hyper-connected world in which we have built processes, structures, um, purely really on speed, efficiency, and cost, not so much on security. Um, how does that look in a world in which opponents, adversaries, actors are using those supply chains, if you will, against us? I think we, we really need to, to rethink that. I think also there's a huge time piece here. As of right now, our broad general consensus is that the Russians had at least nine months head start before they were detected. So what does that mean? Uh, again, I would highlight at least, because I don't think we have full understanding yet. Secondly, 
nine months gives an, an adversary, potentially a high-end actor like the Russians, that gives you a lot of time, not only to access a system, penetrate it, steal or download data, but quite frankly, that gives you time to manipulate, amend, create um, alternative accesses, assume new identity, manipulate control and oversight. One of the challenges that makes this event so significant is it occurred over such an extended period of time. It gave the actor, combined with their capabilities, their advanced capabilities, it gave the actor a huge opportunity to make changes that are so foundational that it calls into question. You got to step back and call into question, okay, do I really have an accurate sense for the current topology, the current structure, the current level of users on my network? Or am I dealing with an adversary who's burrowed in so deep now that I really got to step back and reassess? And that's one of the reasons why you hear people talking about extended timeline. Hey, this could take six, 12 months. Um, there is no doubt this is going to take an extended period of time. And part of the challenge is it would be easy to say, well, the answer is you just burn the network structure down and you start all over again. You know, guys, organizations have to continue to operate. You just can't shut everything off and say, give us two weeks and we'll build you a new network or give us two months and we'll build us a new network. I've had to, you know, as part of the teams I was a part of at Cyber Command and NSA, we have had to deal with penetrations. I remember one discussion involving the Iranians at one point when I was um, at Fleet Cyber Command, so responsible for the Navy's network defense, if you will. Um, you know, the team said to me, sir, we should just burn it all down and start all over again. And I said, do you realize what operational activity is supported by this network? We are not just going to burn this thing down. Guys, we have to learn how to fight. We have to learn how to be agile. We have to learn how to be resilient. We have to continue to operate in the face of a contested environment. We can't just shut down and do the turtle. Hey, let's just pull in, hide under our armor, and hope they'll go away. That's not going to work for us. Yeah, um, two thoughts come to mind, and then uh, I think another line of kind of discussion. The first, th you know, thought that was a extension of our last conversation was we had we had discussed the vulnerabilities that occur when you go to an increasingly digital world. You open up just a whole host of attack vectors that people can seek to exploit. Uh, and one of the things that I remember uh, bringing up that, that has always been very concerning to me is data is not like someone breaking into your house and stealing your TV. And they have like a physical object you used to own, now they own it. Maybe you can recover it. You can maybe hold them accountable. Uh, one, the threshold, the barrier to entry to actually you know, causing cyber attacks, either as a state actor or as a terrorist or just a, you know, someone in your basement, uh, the, the barrier to entry is so much lower that a lot more people can be involved in it. But once you've exfiltrated someone's information, once you've stolen their data, it's it's gone. I mean, you own it. It's on the dark web. It's it's floating around. And I, you know, at least a half dozen, if not a dozen times during my time in, in uniform and with the federal government, receiving a letter in the mail saying, hey, by the way, you know, someone left uh, hard drives in their car, the car was uh, broken into, the, the drives are gone. Your PII, your personally identifiable information was on it. Same thing with the uh, Office of Personnel and Management hack, yeah. where a lot of the, the information that had been stored for people's security clearances had been scooped up. So uh, once that information's gone, it's gone. And of course, that's what we're seeing now with supercomputing, with uh, large, massive data storage, as you Although can start remember, to cross As you said, it's not gone. It's just no longer under your control. And it will uh, always be out there yeah. in someone's hands. You know? So so that was something you just said that really had had 
I don't think a lot of people are cognizant of the fact, like you said, the data's not gone, it's there, they've exfiltrated it, but there's nothing that stops an, an actor from altering that information. And again, right. that was something I think we may have talked about briefly last time was simply just the sheer concern when you are an increasingly digital society, when you commit a lot of your knowledge base to a digital format, should an actor get in there and start modifying, altering things for um, you know, medical drugs? Yeah, we tend your, to focus a lot on uh, extraction, but I think one of the biggest challenges we got ahead of us is what about manipulation? Mm-hmm. Yep. Just subtle changes that quite frankly, aren't readily apparent and don't trip any immediate visible alarm. And then at some point down the road, you find out that the decimals are wrong in geolocations. You know, what's going on? How did that, how did that second and third digit change? Who did that? Right. So I, I, manipulation, I think, is something we're really going to have to pay a lot of attention to increasingly. So something that's, that's been on my mind for a while, and, and in fact, I'd love to write a little bit about is, uh, and in fact, I, I kind of did a pseudo thesis at the War College when I was part of the Mahan Scholars Group. We were looking at cyber. Uh, it's kind of a new attack vector. And it just struck me, you know, when you think about nuclear, when you think about a lot of just conventional deterrence, um, it's easier. You have, uh, of course, mutually assured destruction when you talk about nuclear, and that precludes the use of nuclear. Uh, do you see on the horizon any kind of incentive or uh, equalization at play where, you know, each nation state has so infiltrated the other that it's kind of a, look, we've got to, we've got to slow this down. We've got to stop it because right now it has the appearance of it's a free for all. And in fact, right. I'm incentivized to do it because I, if I can take your intellectual property or if I can know much more about you, why would I not do that? It, it is funny. Historically, Forget about cyber specifically. If you just look historically, what has tended to shape agreements about employment of technology and weapon systems has either been a sense that one side has an advantage that's so bad, we've got to try to negate it and negotiations and formal agreement structures are one technique to attempt to negate it or at least control it, if you will. Um, Another reason is where you've seen technologies, you particularly see this go back in the history of the use of gas, you know, in the First World War, where the perception was the capability was so horrendous, so outside the moral framework, so significant in its impact that it compelled a recognition among multiple parties. Hey, this isn't in anyone's best interest. We need to come up with some kind of control. So you saw, you've seen that with chemical you've seen biological. A third thing where you've seen where historically a capability that is viewed as a little bit like the chemical and the biological, so of such significant consequence, this is really where the nuclear piece gets to be, where we entered into regimes with multiple nations to attempt to address quantity, attributes, kinds of different types of weapons. We try to control different types. We try to control numbers. Is it possible that some kind of compelling need gets the world or at least some element of nations within the world to agree to some form of agreement, structure, set of norms? It's possible. I don't think it's likely immediately. What I think is much more likely, or much more doable, I think, is this idea of rather than trying to say what we, you know, what we will agree to do, let's identify those cyber behaviors that are so abhorrent that they're universally directed, uh, or they're universally 
resisted. For example, hey, the use of cyber to potentially degrade life, life-saving medical capability. Hey, look, that's not in anybody's best interest. So there are some potential norms of behavior, I think, that, that offer opportunity. The other thing, and this is where Solguin gets to be really interesting. So what exactly are the types of activities in the cyber domain that are unacceptable to us? We in the US traditionally argued three specific scenarios. We said, or have said, the theft of intellectual property for use by a nation state to gain competitive advantage. That's really a Chinese scenario. That's totally unacceptable to us. The second scenario that we have argued is unacceptable is the use of cyber as a tool to gain access to with a view to potentially manipulating, degrading, destroying, or denying access to infrastructure or capabilities that are core to a nation's economic well-being, the safety of its citizens, and the health and well-being of its citizens. We've said that should be unacceptable. So going after the power infrastructure, going after the financial structure, shutting down communicate, we've argued, look, that is totally unacceptable. And then the third area we historically argued was, and the use of cyber by groups or nations for criminal, pur criminal purposes, that's really where ransomware right now is probably the biggest thing. We've argued that is unacceptable. Where we have not argued activity is unacceptable is in the area of espionage. We have acknowledged, hey, the United States use cyber as a, uses cyber as a tool. One of the primary missions of NSA uses cyber as a tool to access foreign intelligence targets to generate knowledge and insight that ensures the security and well-being of our nation, its citizens, and our allies. And we acknowledge that every, almost every nation in the world does that. Um, the question gets to be, do you want to outlaw that kind of activity? Do you want to put some measure of controls? There's a good case study, if you go back to OPM back in 2014 or 2015, I think. Remember the DNI's response at the time. Well, the Chinese basically penetrated a government system that held government information, in this case, the, the security records of 21.4 million in US individuals, and they extracted that. And what the DNI said at the time was, guys, that's espionage. We do espionage. We, we, we really have not argued with the Chinese that that is illegal activity. Um, so I think one of the interesting questions is, well, is it some order of magnitude? Yeah, you can do espionage, but if it has some specific threshold, and I don't know what that threshold might be. But as of historically, one of the challenges here for us is historically, we have never argued as a nation from a policy perspective that the penetration of government systems, and by extension, some um, commercial systems associated with national security targets, we've never argued that those are invalid targets for cyber activity. You know, we, we focused on those three other areas. That is going to be an interesting discussion, I think, for the Biden team. You want to move beyond those three traditional, hey, these are the types of activity we believe is unacceptable. But are you going to add something like this? Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a fascinating realm because, like you mentioned, there really is, other than coming to some agreements, which would require also mutual adherence to those agreements, um, which, frankly, would be probably challenging to enforce, let alone, you know, make sure everyone adheres to. Um, 
but but again, I mean, there's, there's like this massive leveling of the knowledge base occurring around the, the globe, where if you're a nation that has cyber capabilities, if you can exfiltrate information, I mean, you're, you could potentially, and I suspect China is probably one of the major benefactors of this, just exponentially growing your capabilities. And then you pair that with your manufacturing, you know, just a sheer right. size I mean, of, of what you can. Guy, I, mean, I would argue there is, I, I can't think of any significant nation around the world that is not investing in a range of cyber capabilities from the defense sure. to the offense. I mean, it's the reality. Our closest allies are doing it. You know, our uh, nations that are of concern to us are doing it. Everyone realizes that there is both a threat to themselves via cyber, but there's also opportunity via cyber. And they're all trying to generate capabilities to address both those dimensions, the offensive and the defensive side. And some are investing more in one than the other. I'm not trying to say everybody is taking the same approach. But I do think, and this, this is where I'd give the Solarium Commission some really high marks. There's some interesting work they did to address your question about, well, how do you deter or how do you attempt to shape adversary behavior? And what they laid out is, which I agree with, look, there's no one single component here. There's about three primary things. One, you make it harder. So that goes to better defense and more resiliency. So you, you outright make it more difficult for adversary to penetrate systems. Secondly, you address this idea of you make it, and this is not just from a cyber perspective, but you make the cost of cyber activity potentially greater in a way that leads an adversary to decide, you know, I maybe could do this from a technical or capability standpoint, but the reaction I might get probably means it's not the smartest thing to do. The risk is just too high or the gain isn't high enough. Let's not go to cyber as a, as a response or let's not use cyber in this particular scenario. I think there's a lot of work to be done there. And then I think also another thing I think solar winds really highlights, the approach to date has largely been one of, this is my opinion, um, but I say this having been part of the team that helped along with a lot of other people who worked hard to try to cr help create it. We generally have come up with an approach where we assign lanes in the road and everybody's got their particular lane. And I just think this shows you that that is an inherently flawed approach to cybersecurity. Cybersecurity to me is all about building integrated capacity and capabilities that bring together not just the capabilities of one organization, one command in the military, one sector, but rather how can we view cyber? as an integrated ecosystem in which we need government, the private sector, working together collaboratively real time. And when I say government, it isn't just, you know, uh, DHS and CISA. That, that's just, again, part of the challenge on the government side is, guys, we, we came up with these lanes in the road and everybody does their own thing. We need a much more integrated real-time approach. I think it's the one area where I disagree with the Solarium Commission's conclusions. My attitude was, so your guys' answer to all this was to double down on the existing structure. I think that's got a low probability of success. Asking the current structure to inherently do a better job, I, I think has a low probability of success. I think rather what's required here is we need to ask ourselves, so what structure does work? And the argument I would make is we need a much more integrated cross-government approach to doing this. If you look at, for example, 
what our Five Eyes partners have done. We're the only nation, the other four all came to the conclusion, you know, much of our expertise in cyber within our government structures is resonant within our security and defense arrangements. Hey, we need to take some measure of that capability and align it with what the other things, both that we're doing, as well as the other kinds of capacity and capability in cyber we have in the government. And we need to put it into an integrated structure. And yet we went the total opposite direction in the US side. We said, no, 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 we don't want those Intel guys. We don't want those military guys. We're gonna create a standalone organization in the Department of Homeland Security and they're gonna do everything. And my argument would be that has not worked to date and I don't think it's gonna work in the future. You're asking one organization that doesn't have the same love, doesn't mean they're not hardworking, it doesn't mean they're not good people, but they are not structured, they're not resourced, and they don't have the expertise to do it. For example, I, I would argue it is symptomatic of that. In, in selecting a cyber lead within the National Security, Security Council, both the Trump administration and the Biden administration selected an NSA individual, Rob Joyce with the Trump team, and now Ann Neuberger, um, both NSA individuals in the cybersecurity side. You know, they, they, again, I think the organization recognizes where deep expertise and deep talent is, but why can't we bring the broader set of capabilities resident with NSA, within DOD? I don't understand this idea of, well, we're just gonna leave it to CISA and they're gonna do it by themselves. I don't think so. I know we don't have too much of your time remaining. I, I do want to talk just real quickly about the commercial sector. But before I do, I think, again, if I've got any kind of a deep thought for the listeners in this go round of our conversation is that, I mean, I think we're going to look back pretty quickly on this period of time in our you know, global history and say it certainly represents the, the most explosive growth in knowledge as a human race and also the quickest leveling of that knowledge amongst industrialized powers simply because of the amount of innovation that's occurred, but then the ability for other nations to rapidly gain access to it and, and make it their own and then subsequently go a new direction. So, um, you know, I think yeah, it's interesting. Were... Technology combined with innovation, innovation in structure, innovation in processes, innovations in methodology. Technology combined with innovation can be a powerful leveler across nations and groups. Yeah. And I think if, you, if you're not a national security professional, you're probably saying, hey, that's a great thing. I mean, imagine where we're going to go as a human race. And of course, if you have a role in national security, if you have a role in actually defending networks, then uh, it's like your worst nightmare. Um, real quick, before you have to go, I'm just wondering, you know, for all those listeners who come from the civilian sector, who work in a corporation, work in a firm, um, what type of companies need to be concerned about cybersecurity? But I would rather ask the question, I would rather phrase the question, I think, are there any companies that should not be concerned about cybersecurity? Good. That's why I wanted you to go with it. Yeah. My argument would be, no, um, because again, you've got such a range of actors. You've got entities, groups, nation states, individuals going after private sector commercial targets for money, ransomware, you know, as a way to extort as a way to steal intellectual property, as a way to potentially negate or place at risk capabilities resident within those companies. I'm like, I look at the scenarios and I'm going, is there a company out there, for example, that couldn't potentially fit into one of those three bins, if not be in multiple bins simultaneously? I, 
this idea that maybe it's because I'm small or maybe it's because I'm not in a sector that's associated with national security that I don't have to worry about this. I, I think that's a very flawed approach and sets an organization up for some real challenges. Are you seeing, I mean, we've kind of talked about nation states. We've talked about those advanced persistent threats who are out there lurking around doing nefarious things. Um, you know, has there been a, a sharp uptick or rise in, frankly, just corporate espionage by way of cyber, by way of digital means? I mean, is that something we've seen? I mean, you've uh, seen it. And I would argue you see corporate espionage both from a cyber perspective as well as a human insider kind of perspective. Sometimes they're intertwined. You use an insider, a human to gain that network access that you couldn't do externally, but they, they get you the access and then you're able to e extract. Or sometimes you'll have that employee, that human individual who has physical access, hey, they'll extract the data for you. Um, you're seeing more of it. I wouldn't argue, I would argue right now, it's probably not a dominant challenge, um, but I will say nation states get the most attention. But if you just look at levels of activity, the, the non-state actors out there by, by far, greatest number of activity, largely criminal, um, greatest level of activity and greatest monetary damage in many ways, in some ways, becoming the criminal. Well, Admiral, I wanna be very mindful of your time and I appreciate you coming back on to talk about uh, solar wind as just being one of what will likely be several avenues of attack for the Russian government. Um, before I let you go, just kind of the last question is always an open-ended one. Is there uh, either an area of interest right now for you that you're just fascinated by, or if it's on this topic, is there something that I didn't ask you that you think you, that the listeners should really know to be informed as they walk away from this episode? So I'm generally trying to think about three things these days. What are the organizational and structural solutions that can help us here, number one? Number two, what's the human dimension all this? Because all too often I watch everybody default to, well, it's all about just creating technologies that make us safe. And I'm going, guys, never forget the human piece in all this. As I used to say, again, as part of the Cyber Command and the NSA teams, look, somewhere there is a man or woman sitting in a keyboard that is executing this operation. There is a human dimension to all of this cyber activity. It isn't just purely casual. So we need to understand the human dimension and we need to optimize our own human capital in all of this because they bring us knowledge, insight. They help us with that adaptability and that agility. They're our edge. It's not the technology. Our greatest edge is our people. The third area that I'm, I tend to focus on right now is that technology piece, particularly quantum and AI, both from an offensive as well as a defensive perspective. You know, how can we apply the technology to increase our defense capabilities and our resilience? And at the same time, how can we apply that technology to potentially gain advantage against adversaries. Well, I appreciate uh, all three of those for for our listeners to chew on. Um, and thanks again for spending time. No, I mean, it's guy, always, always great chatting with you. Um, and to so, the listeners, uh, thanks very much, everybody. These are challenging times for all of us, but motivated yeah, men and women working together as a team, man, you can do some great things. I got to see that every day for 37 years in uniform. That's the part amen. I miss. You know, I don't miss my rank, but I sure miss seeing these motivated men and women just come together as a team. Man, that was powerful yeah, you, every day. You and me both. Well, Admiral Mike Rogers, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, great, Always great chatting with you. And we'll catch you next time. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining us for another episode of Holding the Line, a podcast that explores the intersection between national security, technology, and policy. If you've enjoyed the podcast, once again, go ahead and give me a five-star review. Leave your comments so I understand not only what you liked about the podcast, but also just as importantly, where you'd like to see it go into the future. With that being said, enjoy your week and looking forward to catching up with Peter Singer for the next episode, where we're going to discuss one of his more recent books, Exploring Autonomy and Artificial Intelligence. Take care.